this week. It's the Lord's Day. And what a wonderful blessing and privilege it is to be able to come together to worship our God and King. We've been praying about this special effort, this gospel meeting, for some time now. And I've got to tell you that when Hiram sent us the theme and the topics, one thing that just kept standing out is what is under the magnifying glass. Renewing our faith and focus on Jesus. If every member of Westside renewed their faith and focus on Jesus, this gospel meeting would be outstanding. If people who don't know Jesus had faith begun and focused on Jesus during this special effort, wouldn't that be glorious? Let's determine to make this a special effort where people's faith and focus is placed squarely on Jesus. Now Hiram's going to preach a lot of Bible. And Hiram's going to do a great job preaching it. But we dare not emphasize the messenger more than the message. We dare not emphasize the proclaimer more than the one being proclaimed. I love Hiram, and he's a great friend. He's going to preach the word. But most of all, he's going to reveal a great Savior. Hiram. Good morning. It's a privilege for me to be here with you all. Looking forward to our week together as we begin these series of lessons. Appreciate all the work that's been done, all the prayers that have been prayed so far as we begin our series this week, renewing our faith and our focus on Jesus. I believe there's going to be a slide. There it is. From the beginning of Jesus' entrance into the world, there were questions about his identity, who he was and what he would accomplish, the things that he would be able to do. From the time that his mother was miraculously conceiving him in Matthew 1 and verse 19, people wondered, how can this be seeing that she has not known a man? And as you read the four gospel accounts which tell us about Jesus's life, the questions continue, though they are often packaged and characterized in different ways. Things like John 146, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And as he began to preach and do miracles and perform various signs, they would wonder things like, how can he do these things when he's merely the carpenter's son? They would have discussions among themselves. John 7 tells us that some wondered whether or not he was the prophet, the one that should come into the world. And though some believe that he might be because of their fear of the Jews and being put out of the synagogue, they refused to confess him. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, you remember the question? He said, what do men say about me? Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And various answers were given. Peter says and others in Matthew 16, 14, some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. We could just summarize what people have always said about Jesus in the gospel accounts this way. They were really unsure about who he was. In the scripture reading that's been read for us, you can turn your Bible briefly to John chapter 8 you see really the conundrum that the Jews faced throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. 
In John 8, it's a long section where Jesus is encountering some of his fiercest enemies. And he's in dialogue with the Jews about who he is, what he came to do. And what we have a snapshot of in John 8, 21 through 25, is really what took place throughout the entirety of Jesus's life. The Jews were unable with any consistency to put together the passages from the Old Testament that tell us about the Messiah and how those things apply to Jesus. And so they misunderstood him. They misread him. And ultimately, they rejected him. In John 8 and verse 24, they press him. And Jesus says to them, unless you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. And then in verse 25, they ask him, who are you? And he says, the same one I've been telling you I am from the very beginning. They would often emphasize one part of the messianic passages. Maybe Jesus is king and he's going to be a warrior. Maybe that's who the Messiah will be. But then they would underemphasize the things about his humility and the way that he would receive sinners and outsiders. And so they misunderstood Jesus. And today the same thing happens with people. And we need to be careful that we don't misunderstand Jesus because of our overemphasis on one part of his nature over the other. Suppose you would ask Christians, who is Jesus? Or even more personally, who is Jesus to you? And if you had this blank, if somebody said Jesus is and you fill in the blank, what would be in your blank? And we need to be careful that whatever we would put in the blank would be what Jesus says about himself and what the New Testament tells us about Jesus. Because to the degree that we emphasize one facet of who Jesus is to the neglect of another, it's like a half-baked cake or something that's not fully completed or done. And we miss out on the nature and focus of all of what the New Testament tells us about Jesus and who he is. This morning, briefly in the sermon time that we have together, I just want to emphasize seven things that the New Testament tells us about Jesus and who he is and allow the New Testament to speak for itself concerning who Jesus is. He's the same Jesus that he's been proclaimed as from the beginning, the same Jesus that the whole world needs to know and fall in love with and that Christians need to adore and then go out and share with the world. Who is Jesus? Number one. Jesus is our Lord and our God. In John chapter 20, this is the occasion where Jesus is resurrected. This is a post-resurrection occurrence where Jesus is before his disciples. And you remember, Jesus has already appeared to some of the disciples, some of the apostles on several occasions. But Thomas was not present on all of those occasions. And he had some doubts. He had some questions. And so he says, I won't believe until I see him with my own eyes, till I put my hands in his side and in the nail prints. And Jesus appears to Thomas. And in John chapter 20 and verse 28, he says, hey, put your hand here and see and feel it is me. And Thomas exclaims on that occasion in verse 28, my Lord and my God. He was right. Jesus is in the first place, our Lord and our God. Now, most people wouldn't phrase it this way, but what most people in the world sometimes want from Jesus is a divine butler of sorts, a Jesus they can kind of push around, a Jesus who always approves of their actions and their decisions and their life patterns. And so you might talk to someone that you know about Jesus and what the New Testament says about him, and they may say things like, well, Jesus is okay with the way that I'm living or the things that I'm doing or the things that I'm not doing. As if we can sort of package Jesus any way that we want and that he is always going to be pleased with our decisions and that he never makes any ultimatums of us or tries to make any type of reformation in our lives. But the Jesus that we encounter in Scripture is larger than life. The Jesus that we encounter in Scripture can't just be packaged and folded up into some nice and neat napkin and sort of butlered around and pushed around by us. He's larger than life. He's God. 
John opens his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's exactly who Jesus is. He's not God Jr. or God the second. He's not some well-behaved angel that was exalted to a greater position after a flawless performance on earth. He has always been God. And what Thomas exclaims in John 20 must be embraced and grasped by everybody that will be pleasing to him. The New Testament doesn't just sneak this in here and there. It's brought about in so many passages that it's hard to miss. In Romans 9 and verse 5, he's called the blessed Lord and God. Colossians 1 and verse 15 says he's the image of the invisible God. He's equated with God in John 14, 8 and 9 when he tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. That is, I am God. In Titus 2 and verse 13, he's the blessed Lord and God. Make no mistake about this. Any view of Jesus that sees him merely as the carpenter's son or a famous and skilled Jewish rabbi is to see Jesus for less than he is. He is full of God. This was the struggling point for the Jews. They could accept him as a prophet. They could accept him as a miracle worker, but they struggle with his deity. Jesus is fully God and fully man and a sound and biblical view of him emphasizes both of those things. This is who the New Testament says that he is. This is who he proclaimed himself to be. And this should change the way that we approach him. When we come into the presence of Jesus, we don't boast. We bow because of who he is. But notice Thomas's description of Jesus. He's our Lord and our God. This part about Jesus being our Lord means that there's only one boss in Christianity, and it's Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. That means he's our master. He's the one that's ultimately in charge. We quote this verse often in Churches of Christ, Colossians 3, 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. But the emphasis in that passage is whatever Jesus wants us to do, we do it in a way that's pleasing to him because he's our Lord. He's the one we ultimately aim to please. Number one this morning, Jesus is our Lord and he is also our God. Here's number two. Jesus is our hope. When Paul wrote to Timothy, his young protege in the faith, He began this letter like he always does. He introduces himself, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ, which is, and then just insert this, our hope. I hope if you had a blank this morning and you could say, Jesus is blank, this would be in that blank. Jesus is our hope. Now, the way that we use hope and the way that the New Testament uses it, are often two very different things. We say things like this. We pull out of a drive-thru. I hope they drop some extra fries in the bag at McDonald's, right? Or we may say, I hope I passed this test that I didn't really study for, put the effort into it. Or I hope that I'm considered for the job promotion. And what we mean by hope is sort of across your fingers. I hope things sort of fall my way. I hope the Florida Gators beat Alabama or something like that. But the New Testament's idea of hope is not wishful thinking. In the New Testament, the word that is often translated hope means a confident expectation that things will turn out the way that they should. It's a confident expectation and assurance based on the one that our hope is put in. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is our hope. Our hope isn't just in Jesus. He himself embodies our hope. You could read through your New Testament and notice how many times the word hope appears. And in many of the passages which mention the word hope, you could just take out the word hope and insert Jesus Christ, his name, and do no harm to the text or the passage. 
Think about some of the passages that mention hope in the New Testament and how those very same passages mirror who and what Jesus is to us. Peter says, you have a living hope laid up for you in heaven. First Peter one in verse three. Isn't that also true of Jesus? Hope is our anchor for the soul. Hebrews six, 19 through 20. But isn't that also true about Jesus? Over and over again, the New Testament emphasizes this idea that we have a confident expectation in God because of who he is and what he does for us. And we should appreciate this one reality that Jesus is our one and our only hope. People in the New Testament times in which Jesus lived and walked in the first century, they understood this. When you read through the gospel accounts, not only do you see Jesus performing miracles, but there is this sort of heart disposition among people that encounter Jesus with this one reality. There he is, Jesus of Nazareth. And if I could just get to him, my circumstances would change. If I could just get a touch of who he is, everything would be okay. And if I miss this opportunity, I've missed it all because he is my only hope. Think about people in the gospel accounts and where they were before Jesus came and how he changed their reality forevermore. Think about how many times the Holy Spirit makes sure that we know not only that people were sick and destitute, but the Holy Spirit goes to great lengths to often tell us how long people were in the conditions that they were before Jesus came. What's the reason for that? It's to emphasize this reality that before Jesus entered their circumstances, there was no hope of things ever improving. Bartimaeus. In Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 48, he's been blind a long time. And he sits by the wayside, and as Jesus enters into Jericho and is about to pass by, he just starts crying out. He's crying out like a man that doesn't just merely want a favor. He's crying out as a man that is desperate. Have you ever been desperate before? Because that's where Bartimaeus is. The crowds try to silence him, but to no avail. He knows Jesus of Nazareth is coming And if I miss this opportunity, it may never come again. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus does. And then in John chapter five, we read about a man who has been sitting in this condition for 38 years. 38 years. He's been by the pool of Siloam. 38 years. Nobody could help him. In fact, he actually says those words in John seven and John five and verse seven. I have no one. Until Jesus shows up. And Jesus changes his life. It's the same situation of the man in Mark chapter 2 when his friends bring him to the house where Jesus is preaching near Capernaum and they break up the roof. Why go to those drastic measures and do all of those things? This is our one and only chance. If he will ever walk again, if he'll ever be made whole, here's our opportunity. The reality is people knew the woman, the Canaanite woman, In Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 15, they knew this one. If I could just touch his garment, if I could just get close to him, things could improve. And we, though far removed from the miraculous age, need to echo those same thoughts and express that same reality and appreciate this one fact. Our lives can be changed drastically if we would come into his presence and allow him through his word to work on our hearts. That means that there's hope in our lives for marriages that may be fractured, for raising children that may be sometimes difficult for jobs that seem like they're not going anywhere, for financial struggles. We say what they said. If Jesus enters the equation, all hope isn't lost. No, moreover, hope is realized. There's an opportunity. I have a confident expectation that what God is doing in me is not finished. God's not through with me and my circumstances can't improve. Jesus is the one that changes our earthly reality because Jesus himself 
He is our hope. We need to share this hope with the world. We live in a world of hopelessness. T.S. Eliot wrote an essay in 1940 where he said we shouldn't put our hope in many things. We should delay and postpone putting our hope in other things and getting our expectations up lest we hope in the wrong things. And sometimes we feel this way, even as Christians. We sort of condition ourselves and sometimes we say, well, think about the worst case scenario. You don't want to really get your hopes up. If you're a Christian, you can't get your hopes up high enough. Though they've been broken, though you've been disappointed in this life, as we all have, our hope is anchored in someone who never disappoints, who never lets us down, who has come through and who will ultimately in the end. Jesus is our hope. Here's number three. Christ Jesus is our life. In Colossians chapter three, Paul is speaking about the new life that we enjoy as Christians because of the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And then in Colossians three and verse four, he says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we will also appear with him in glory. Jesus Christ is our life. I hope that's in your blank. When you think about who Jesus is, he is our life. Now, this is true in a general sense for everyone, whether or not they're Christians, because the Bible says that in him is life. John one and verse four in him, we live and move and have our very being. Acts 17, 26 through 28. The reality is when individuals draw breath, whether they're Christians or agnostic or atheists, the reason that that's able to take place is because Jesus wills it to be so. In him, all things consist and hold together. Colossians 1 and verse 17. Jesus is everyone's life in that regard. Everyone who lives, lives because Jesus has granted them life and allows it to be so. But for Christians, Jesus is our life in a different and more significant way. When the Bible says that Jesus is our life, as Paul uses the statement in Colossians 3 and verse 4, it means that this is the reality Paul's trying to express. Jesus is our reason for why we are who we are and why we do the things that we do. The psalmist called him the God of his life. Psalm 42 and verse 8. I will make this prayer to the God of my life. And that's who Jesus is for us. He's the anchor that holds our life together. Why do you do the things that you do? What is your why? What's your motivation? What gets you out of bed? Why do you come to worship God? Why do you live the way that you live? If you're a Christian, the response to that question is because Jesus rose from the dead. What we did this morning in the partaking of the Lord's Supper and what we do every first day of the week as we assemble and as we structure our lives based on the New Testament is because of this truth that we hold dear. Jesus is our everything. Jesus is our life. They asked Steve Jobs, what was his why? Why does he do the things that he he does? And he said, I'm motivated by success. Michael Jordan, they asked him, why do you do the things that you do? Why did you train the way that you did? He said, I was motivated by a fear of failure. Tony Robbins was asked the same question. and He said, I didn't want to lose opportunities. And so I was motivated by a hunger, a thirst, a desire to please. Walt Disney said what his why was was curiosity. But for Christians, we aim higher than those things. Our motivation is ultimately driven by Jesus Christ and who he is. We've set these words to music. Galatians 2 and verse 20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we're Christians, Jesus motivates us. He's the reason why we do the things that we do. What we should be asking ourselves on a daily basis is, are my decisions pleasing to God? Is the way that my life is structured ultimately pleasing to him? Am I doing the things that he wants me to do? Because he's the one that I aim to please. 
He's my very life. Here's number four. Jesus is our friend. The Bible teaches that Jesus is our Lord and God. We normally have no problem with that. The Bible teaches that Jesus is our hope. And based on our past and sin and our inability to save ourselves, we wouldn't have an issue with that. Jesus as our life and the one who will ultimately raise us from the dead and give us those new resurrected bodies probably is something that Christians can grasp and hold to with relative ease. But on this point, number four, Jesus as our friend, we need to emphasize this more than maybe we do. The Old Testament tells us that the Jews were God's chosen people. They're called his priesthood. In Exodus chapter 19, they enjoyed a special relationship with God. Psalm 147, 19 and 20 talks about the covenant that was given to them through Moses and that they were the only people that God made a special covenant arrangement with under that old covenant law. Only two times in the entirety of the Old Testament is anyone called God's friend. And both of those statements are made about Abraham. In Isaiah 41 and verse 8 and 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 7, God says that Abraham is his friend and we can accept that. Abraham's the father of the faithful. He leaves Ur of the Chaldees. He does pretty much everything that God asked him to do. And we can drink deeply from that and accept it. But throughout the Old Testament, you don't read of the Jewish people as close as they were with God being called his friends. But in the New Testament, we do. In John 15 and verse 13, for the first time in John's gospel, he talks about the disciples this way. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And you might read that and say, well, of course, the apostles were his friends. They walked with him. They lived with him for three years. But what about me? Jesus knows the things that I've done, the ways that I failed him, the ways that I fall short. But the New Testament doesn't just say that he's friends of the apostles. He was called the friends of publicans and sinners. Matthew 11 and verse 19. He called all who would follow him, his friends, Luke 12 and verse 4. He called Lazarus, his endeared friend in John 11 and verse 11. He's not just our Lord. He's not just our God, though he is those things. He's our friend. The word translated friend in our New Testament means someone who has an intimate and close relationship with another and is deeply interested in their welfare. What do you look for in a friend? What would you say makes someone a good friend? The book of Proverbs says a lot about this, that faithful are the wounds of a friend. That is, when a friend does something to correct us, it's a good thing. And that's what Jesus does when he corrects us. As iron sharpens iron, so a man's countenance is sharpened by his friends. Good friends, true friends make us better. And Jesus does that for us as well. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. No one fits that description better than Jesus, who was literally born in order to enter our adversity and take it away. He's the greatest friend we've ever known or ever had or ever needed. Jesus is our friend. If you had friends for any length of time, you know that this sometimes happens. We wish it didn't happen, but sometimes it does. Sometimes friends get into arguments. They get into disagreements. They have things of which they may get into a sort of conflict. And when this happens with friends, there's a danger. The danger is this. As these two individuals who've sort of merged their lives together and they've shared a lot of commonality, if someone doesn't come across the fence, if someone doesn't try to remedy the situation, it's very well possible that the friendship could be ruined. What we would hope in those circumstances, what we could wish for is that the one that did the wrong would be the one to go across the fence, correct? You would expect that if you got into an argument with a friend, if they took something from you, if they stole something from you, if they hurt you in a certain way, there's a sort of, there's a sort of danger, there's a sort of weight that's placed on the friendship. But we would assume that the one that did the wrong 
would be the one to go across the fence first and say, listen, I beg your pardon. I'm sorry. Hey, let's let bygones be bygones. Let's be reconciled one to another. Jesus isn't just our friend. He's our best friend, because when we ruined the relationship, when we offended the God of heaven, he didn't wait for us to come to him. In fact, you wouldn't have gone to him and neither would I. God had to come across the clouds for us because we wouldn't have reconciled with God. We spit in his face. We've sinned. We've wronged him. And God says, you know what? I'm such a great friend. I won't wait for them to reconcile with me. They never would. They couldn't. So I'll come to them. Second Corinthians five nineteen through 21 talks about the ministry of reconciliation that's been committed to the apostles and handed down to us as Christians. And then the Bible says he made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The reality is Jesus is our friend and he's the one that extended his hand first. And often, most often, even though he's innocent, he did nothing to rupture the relationship, but he values it so much that he wants to have it maintained. Joseph Metlicott Scriven is a man who had a lot of hardship in his life. When he was born, he wanted to go into the military like his father, but physical maladies and issues of that sort prevented him from doing so. He graduated from college in 1842, and he was set to get married. The night before his wedding, his fiancée drowned and died. He suffered a lot of hardship and mental, mental um, instability because of that, and he planned to get married again. He moved to Canada, and in 1842, he was going to get married to another woman. And right before the wedding, she also became ill, and then she died. In 1855, he heard that his mother was sick, and he wanted to go and see her before she passed away, but travel and other things prevented him from going. And so the best he could do was write her a note, and he wrote her a note with these words, which has become a song that we often sing in our assemblies. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Mr. Joseph knew this one thing. He suffered a lot of hardship. He's gone through a lot of difficulty, a lot of loss, everything that he loved, everything he grasped onto eventually slipped out of his hands. But one thing was a constant and it saw him through. He could depend on Jesus Christ. And I hope that when we see Jesus, we see him as the Bible describes him. And that is as someone who's a friend, the most righteous person who ever lived. Sinners felt most welcome and most received around him. Why is that the case? You would assume that he would be the person that we would feel most small around. But children and sinners and harlots and drunkards, when they saw him, they couldn't help but be drawn to him like a magnet. And it's because of the way that he described himself. In the only verse in the New Testament, when Jesus tells us his own heart, he says, I am meek and lowly in heart. The only man who could have ever beat his chest and said, I'm a self-made individual. I'm righteous and pure and sinless. He says, I'm meek and lowly in heart. You'll find rest unto your souls inviting and welcoming and warm. That's a corrective for us as Christians. People should be drawn to us. And if the kinds of people that were drawn to Jesus are repelled by us, we may be doing Christianity wrong. Jesus is our friend. Here's number five. Jesus is our judge. I've never gone to jury duty. Maybe you have. I hear it's not fun, even though they pay. But, you know, you can't miss you can't miss it. If you're called, you have to go and make an appearance. And there's a process and a selection process that they go through for individuals to serve in this capacity. But the great reality is in the judgment, it won't be that way. John five and verse twenty two, Jesus is said that the father's committed all judgment to the son. John twelve and verse forty eight. 
Jesus says, he that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. The words that I've spoken, the same will judge you in the last day. Jesus is our judge and he should be seen as such. He's the only one that will sit on the throne at the end of life's race and he'll meet out the judgment. Everybody's going to be there. People that have ignored the first four things that are on this list, they'll be there. John says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. There is one throne on that day. And Jesus is the one that will occupy that throne and everyone else will be judged. It won't be like we often see in movies, though. We won't stand up and we won't be able to make a defense. Jesus is the only one who will do the defending. He'll do the accusing. He'll do the the pardoning because he's the great judge. There is this term that's often called a jailhouse lawyer. A jailhouse lawyer is someone who is incarcerated themselves and they are in the habit of giving advice to other inmates that are incarcerated. And they're saying, hey, you're going to court tomorrow for burglary. Hey, here's what you should do and here's how you should plead. Now, you might imagine all the problems with something like that. Number one, this person is normally not a professional. But number two and most problematic is this person is also guilty of breaking the law that they now claim to be an expert on. You wouldn't want to take advice from someone like that. Not necessarily. Not if you could help it. It might be helpful on some occasions, but on most, it's not. When you and I think about the judgment, we should be very careful not to take advice from people who will also be in the line on the day of judgment. We should be trying to listen to the commands of the one who will be at the head of the line, who will be doing the judging himself, who will be meeting out the guilty and not guilty verdicts. That's the one we should be listening to. And only listening to those who echo his words from scripture because Jesus is the great judge. Now, for Christians, this is not a scary thing. This is something that should bring us great confidence. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And then he allows that same son to represent us as our advocate in the day of judgment. First John two and verse one. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ. Every day we get up and serve and worship God, this is merely a rehearsal for what will happen on the day of judgment when you hear these words, not guilty. Romans 8 and verse 1 says, there is no condemnation. That means God is not holding any sin against the Christian. And in the day of judgment, what God will say to you and to me and to the rest of the watching audience on that occasion is what we've known the entirety of our Christian lives, that God loves us greatly, that we are forgiven because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we can enter into the eternal joys of our Lord. Two more. Number six, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. The old King James renders this in Hebrews 12 and verse two. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Most new newer translations like the ESV and others, I think, get a better idea of capturing this when they say he's really the one that brings our faith to its completion, because that's what this is all about. Jesus runs the first leg and the last leg in Christianity. There is no Christianity without the Christ. That's who Jesus is. He began Christianity, but he's also the one that will finish it. This goes back to the idea that Jesus is in charge. And as elementary as this may seem, a point maybe to be emphasized in an elementary Bible class is something that I often need to remind myself of continually. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, not my favorite preacher. And I have many. Not any school of preaching or any group of other individuals. The only person that is in charge in Christianity is Jesus Christ. The only one that gets to make the rules or tell people what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He didn't begin Christianity and then say, "Okay, you guys take it from here and do whatever you want. And whatever laws you want to make, whatever things you want to emphasize, whatever emendations you want to insert, go ahead and do it. Jesus didn't just begin Christianity. 
He sustains it. And he's the finisher of it. Our faith is anchored best when it is anchored in our Lord. You may have had great parents, and that's a great thing. And I know Christians who've been raised in great Christian homes throughout the years. But the question that should be swirling around in our minds and in our hearts as we make our day-to-day decisions is not necessarily, what will my mom and dad think about this? You may have great friends that share your same convictions. But as we live from day to day, as we encounter other individuals, we shouldn't be thinking as we look over our shoulder, I wonder what so-and-so would do in this circumstance. I wonder how they would react to this. I wonder how they would interact with this person. That's not good enough. And maybe we went to a Christian college or heard many lessons in a lectureship or in a sermon. But what should be at the top of our priority list as we think about how we're going to live out the things that we say we believe? And this is harder than we think. If you know your own heart, you know this is a challenge because we often base our standards off of what we see. And we are tempted, much like the early disciples, to walk in step with other people who are on our same level. But Jesus calls us to a higher degree than that. It's easy to compare ourselves among ourselves. And to look at other people and say, well, they wouldn't deal with them, so I'm not going to. And they probably would be harsh to this person, so I'm going to be harsh to this person. But Jesus challenges us in our comfort zones. And he says, you're going to have to be more compassionate than that. And you're going to have to be more forgiving than that. And you're going to have to be more holy than that. And if he's the author and finisher of our faith, the test that every decision I make must pass is the one of the Savior. What's ultimately pleasing to Jesus Christ? And here's the seventh and final one. Jesus is our Savior. You really couldn't have a list like this one without this point because it's what his name means. Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. If Jesus is anything, he is this. He's a Savior. Philippians 3 and verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. From where also we look for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile or our lowly body, that it might be fashioned like his glorious body, according to the working whereby he's able to subdue all things to himself. Jesus is our Savior. Now, I don't know if you've ever needed saving in everyday life. Just take Christianity out of it for just a moment. And think about times when you've needed saving or you've seen somebody else that needed it. Maybe somebody's out at the beach and they're swimming and a rip current takes them further than they expected to go. And maybe you've seen someone come in and rescue an individual in that circumstance. Or someone's eating lunch or dinner and something gets lodged in the airway. And they need someone to come along and sort sort of jar the food loose and rescue them in that circumstance. Or, you know, you've seen this one for sure, an individual whose car stalls or breaks down and you see some guys behind it pushing. Maybe that's been you, the pushing or the one being pushed. But in that circumstance, they needed help. They needed rescuing. What we see in all of those circumstances is a small snapshot of what Jesus ultimately did for us. Sin had blocked our pathway to God. It had taken us far away from his holy and his divine presence. We need it more than a push. Jesus doesn't just come along and aid us. Jesus comes to earth and performs on our behalf so that he might rescue us and redeem us. He's our savior. He's the one that ultimately will take us back to God, as Paul mentions in Philippians 3 and verse 20. There is salvation in none other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is a savior. The good news is Jesus didn't need saving. 
so he could focus all of his attention, all of his efforts on rescuing us. He could empty himself, as Paul says in Philippians 2, and have all of his attention on rescuing and redeeming humanity who desperately needed to be saved because he needed no saving of his own. What did he save us from? It's a long list, but you can summarize it with three things. He saved us from sin, from Satan, and ourselves. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, because we're humans, Jesus also took on the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Sometimes we talk about the devil as if he's there's fierce, an awesome foe that is equal to God, but just on the bad team. But the Bible says not only is he not that, he's a wounded and a defeated enemy, though he has influence and he uses it in a limited capacity. Jesus destroyed him and delivered us from him and through the fear of death, even though we previously were all our lifetimes subject to bondage. Jesus did that because he is a savior. When they came to Jesus in John chapter eight, they said, would you just tell us who you are? And that's kind of a hard question to answer in one immediate sentence. And Jesus says, in summary, the one that I've told you from the beginning, they would have to stick around to listen to more of the preaching, to see more of the signs, to ultimately see and embrace the great resurrection. But Jesus is everything that the New Testament says he is. We should be aware of emphasizing one of those things above the other. The New Testament gives us a clear and a comprehensive and a complete picture of who Jesus is. And we should fall in love with, embrace, magnify, and echo the Jesus of Scripture. Most people want to make Jesus in their own image. But the message from the New Testament is Jesus is trying to make us into his. Maybe today you need to become a Christian. Become a disciple, a student, a learner of Jesus Christ. To know of his compassion, to know of his love, to know of his hatred of sin, his love for humanity, and his ultimate desire to save you. Maybe you've been studying the New Testament with someone and you've come to the conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You're ready to repent and turn from your sins and confess what your heart believes. He is the Son of the living God, my Lord and my God. The Bible says when you make that confession, you're ready to be immersed in water, to have your sins forgiven. And because he's the Savior, he'll wash away every one of those sins and you can rise to walk in newness of life. Maybe you've done that already and you need the prayers of the church or we can help and encourage in any way. If this is your invitation, if we can help you in any way, come to us together. We stand and as we sing.